I'm seeing something that was always hidden. I'm involved in a mystery. I'm in the middle of a mystery, and it's all secret. You like mysteries that much? Yeah. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Shure SM7B via the Avitas MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the moon cabin. A warm welcome to you all. And if you're new here, thank you for joining the Fellowship of the Afflicted. We are sick and we are suffering. And we don't think that that's going to change. But we are not afraid. We began today's show with a clip from the movie Blue Velvet. And coming up in a minute, a conversation with the Wizard of Odd himself, Mr. Terry Miles. Plus, through a haze of dizzying digits, a man from Savannah speaks the truth. This week on... Now on Thursdays. But first, another dispatch from my nocturnal scribbles in the glorious gloom. Better known as... Night Pages. In our last episode, Avery Truffleman spoke the truth. What we want is to want. Last week, I was driving to work listening, as I often do, to 90.7 FM WFUV. They were playing the Fiona Apple song, Paper Bag, and there was wind in the trees as I approached the BQE. And as I pulled up to a red light, I was about to do the thing that I should never do, but always do. Pick up my phone from the cup holder and thumb through Reddit for a few seconds until the light changes, a horn honks, and I curse under my breath, before I lurch forward through the intersection. But on this day, I didn't do that. Instead, I took a deep breath, and I listened to Fiona's smoky crooning. I thought about the first time I heard this song, sitting at my desk at the big search engine company, streaming FUV into my headphones, staring at the ceiling with a fidget spinner. Remember those? Side note, fidget spinner... Sounds like the title of a Fiona Apple record, no? Every time my boss at the big search engine walked by, I would frantically click away from the tab I kept open to watch vocal mixing tutorials on YouTube. One time I snuck away from my desk and hid in a conference room for three hours writing a parody of the Macklemore song Thrift Shop for my baseball podcast. Another time I took a week of vacation days and used them to volunteer at my favorite public radio show. I spent four years at the big search engine wishing for all the world that I was doing exactly what I do now, get up every morning and drive to work at my own little recording studio, where my whole job is to make podcasts and radio shows. And yet, most days when I get to that red light, my fingernails are digging into my cuticles because I'm two weeks behind on an episode script. (laughs) 
I have a source that I'm supposed to call for a story, and I'm too scared to email them to set up a time because I'm worried I'll sound like an idiot on the phone with them. No matter how many mixing tutorials I have watched, I can't seem to get the mud out of the low mids of my vocal mix, and I've convinced myself it's because I've somehow managed to break my microphone by talking into it. And that's why I reach for the phone in the cup holder. I grasp at a few seconds of distraction from this endless dissatisfaction, this craving. Because even though I have gotten many of the things I wanted, the wanting never goes away. I still want the same things, only more intensely now. I know them well enough now to know how hard they are. And it aches, this wanting. And on that day last week, I thought maybe if I could just breathe in the music and the trees, I could make peace with the wanting, surrender to it. Spare a thought for fidget spinner Sam, who believed mornings like this one would never come. And for a second, I did. I breathed. I turned up the volume on paper bag. I listened to Fiona sing, Hunger Hurts, but starving works for me when it costs too much to love. The music got so loud, I almost didn't hear the horn behind me. The light had changed. It was time to lurch forward. Friends, as you may recall, we have a patron saint here at the Midnight Disease, one Albert Vetch, a possibly fictional author invented by Michael Chabon in his book Wonder Boys. Vetch is always chasing something he can't quite define. And as you'll hear, that's true of many of the characters in the stories of my guest on the show today, Terry Miles. Terry is a novelist, a musician, and a filmmaker— and he is perhaps best known as the creator of beloved fiction podcasts like The Black Tapes, Tannis, Rabbits, Fairy, The Last Movie, and Wildflowers. Many of those shows feature a radio producer and reporter named Nick Silver, voiced by Terry himself. Nick is a busy guy. In The Black Tapes, he's helping another reporter unravel the mystery of a series of videotapes belonging to an equally mysterious man. In Tannis, he embarks on a quest to locate a mythic ancient city that is rumored to change locations and can only be accessed by solving a series of riddles and codes. Nick finds clues in old newspaper ads, card catalogs, and rare book manuscripts. Nick's investigations are part of the broader goings-on at a fictional radio network called the Public Radio Alliance, where Nick's character works. In Rabbits, Nick hires a woman named Carly Parker to make a podcast about the disappearance of her best friend, who has vanished while playing a mysterious game called Rabbits. There's this idea in Rabbits that the game chooses its players. One of the ancillary elements of the story is something called path cards, 
a deck of cards with various numbers and symbols that players try to decode to reveal their path, a path that promises to bring them closer to the invisible forces that seem to guide the game. The totality of Terry's creative execution on these projects is jaw-dropping. For most of these shows, Terry writes the scripts, voices a principal character, directs and engineers the recording sessions with the actors, mixes and edits the episodes, and writes the original score. He is a world-builder, in the truest sense. And I have spent countless wondrous hours in Terry's worlds, many of those in the car. I love to turn on Terry's shows just as the sun is going down, to let his voice and his stories usher me into the dark. You know that part in Twin Peaks where Donna says, it's like I'm having the most beautiful dream and the most terrible nightmare all at once? That's how I feel when I'm listening to Terry. And I invite you to listen to him now on WALT. Terry Miles, thank you so much for being on the Midnight Disease. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. When you reached out, like uh, when it says the Midnight Disease in the subject line, I am immediately Wonder Boys is one of my favorite books, and I, I love I love the movie as well. But like, um, like if I pull down my, <laughs> I'm looking at my copy of Wonder Boys right now, the paperback. It the, there's so many dog-eared pages. Yes. It's like fatter at the top than at the bottom. I just just it's just an all-timer for me. So that was exciting. Oh my god! Well, that's I'm thrilled to hear that. So I have to ask: Did that phrase, the Midnight Disease, ping any? Memories for you of reading Wonder Boys or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah, I immediately went back and had a look. I mean, th- that particular fake writer is <laughs> an inspiration for a certain writer in the Tannis universe named August Wick. Um, oh my God, fantastic. Uh, that's really interesting to hear. And I'm, I'm curious to know, maybe before I tell you why Vetch and the Midnight Disease as an idea is resonant for me, what was it about? Uh, that Vetch character that made you want to kind of pay homage through a character? It's more of a feeling than anything. Like, I just remember feeling the history of that character and their, you know, trial. And it just felt like deep, deep and mythological and and that kind of, yeah, it was more just the feeling that sort of inspired me to to want to, you know, elicit that feeling in someone else. Yes, I, I really appreciate that that. Uh, the use of the word mythological, because I, for me, like so much of Wonder Boys is about the the mythos of being a writer and how you tap into it and how you access it and can you ever even actually occupy that identity. And so the reason I fixate so much on this phrase, the midnight disease, is there's there is this one passage where he's describing his initial encounter with Vetch, and he says of him that uh, he was the first writer he met who had the midnight disease. The Staring Eye, The Faithful Bottle of Bourbon. And I took it as an encapsulation of this notion that writers and by extension artists and makers of all kinds are a a bit ill (laughs) with this, this perpetual sense that they are not able to be present or in their life unless they 
are in some kind of regular communion with the muse, whatever that means to them. Um, and that if they, when they lose that tether, they actually lose their tether to existence and life. <laughs> um, yeah. They aren't able to function. So my first question for you is, do you consider yourself, if you take that, uh, if you accept that definition of the midnight disease, would you characterize yourself as afflicted? <laughs> yeah, I think for sure. I mean, that is a perfect way to put it. I, th- there has to be something that, that is nagging and always there. Otherwise, the, the tether is lost. And, and then, you know, nobody's happy to be around me at that point. I have to have that that thing it is definitely always there and and you know thankfully always there that that it has to i have to feel that sort of um like i'm writing the um sequel to the rabbit's novel right now so that's the thing right now that i have to always have running in the background if it wasn't there i would be lost i would be you know i would have to create a new podcast series or something i, I would need something to to that that spot in my mind can't be empty. Yes, yes. And and if I'm hearing you right, there is no replacement for that feeling other than treating it by making a new thing. Yeah. Once you finish something large, like I just released a, a new podcast series called Wildflowers. And, and when that ended, I still had the Rabbits novel, but it wasn't loaded in the bank. So mm-hmm. that's... That's a, always sort of a down time, you know, after just when you should be celebrating the birth of something new into the world. That's, uh, I, I'm sure other creators feel the same way, but it's often depressing, like not clinically, but it, or it could be, I suppose, but just like it's, it's over and it's like shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know if I can swear, but like, yeah. no, 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 feel free. I actually, um, the way I was going to describe um, the, the most concise definition of the midnight disease maybe is this quote I heard attributed to Gary Shandling, where he said something along the lines of, when he's not working, I'm all fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That that checks out for sure. Yeah. So do you think you could give language to the thoughts that go through your head in that moment, just following the release or completion of some project? Is it a sense of I didn't get what I was driving at and now I'm never going to get a chance to fix the mistakes I think I've made or what what are those those um, thoughts that swirl in that downtime um no actually there uh, I love wildflower you know what I mean mm-hmm. I was it really came off the way that I wanted which is not true of everything sure um, <laughs> so that one was like it's often the most exciting things that maybe it's because you're not going to spend time with them anymore I don't know. I I feel there's no, there's satisfaction in finishing for sure. Of course, like there, there has to be, but I don't know. I don't know how much I feel it. It, it, it just feels like you're, something is gone, I guess. Mm. Um, And the more, the more I enjoy the thing, the, the, the sort of darker, the, it just feels like nothing doesn't, things don't taste as good. (laughs) Like it's just a, (laughs) it's a, you know, until the next thing, really catches fire or moves far enough along that it, it, it fills the spot. Yeah. That's a really beautiful idea. I think you just articulated that it, it, the idea that it feels like something is gone. Um, and I think for a creator like yourself, who seems to put so much of yourself into everything that you make, particularly in the sense of being somebody who 
touches so many parts of the process from writing to recording to mixing to music. The idea that you have a, a part of you has left and now lives in this project. I could imagine an attendant feeling of, will a new part of me ever grow to replace <laughs> what has just been extruded into this work of art? Yeah, that that's probably the, that's the best, you know, I've ever heard it described, I think. <laughs> I mean, that 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 is like exactly right. There, there, yeah, I wouldn't consciously think that, but that, you know, hearing you say that makes perfect sense. Like there is probably an unconscious, subconscious fear of, of losing that part that created that, you know, work. Mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that's <laughs> come back it's, uh, every time. And it happens every single, with every work. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. Not that I want to celebrate uh, the sense of, you know, torture and personal loss that <laughs> uh, we're kind of describing here, but... I think, you know, of all the work of yours that I have listened to and read, that feeling really comes through this, the sense of deep um, investment and something passing through you into my headphones onto the page that I'm reading is so palpable. And I guess my... The next question there is, well, before, before a question, I want to tell you something, which is that um, I think that Tannis and the Nick Silver character in particular very much remapped my brain in terms of how I think about what it means to lose yourself in something and how invested one ought to be if something really matters to you. Um, and what I mean by that is the Nick Silver character is, it's like he's unable, this is just my perception of him, of course, please feel free to, sure, to push back, but it's yeah. like he's unable to separate from the stories that he works on, Tannis in particular. He's always at the studio early in the morning or at the studio late at night, um, in the narration, you talk about how he's just in the middle of retracking narration because he didn't have it quite right. When the phone rings and a source who he's been trying to get in touch with calls, and then he jumps on the line and talks to them, and then he very frequently— That sounds convenient. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> but also uh, dramatically yeah. gratifying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then often, you know, he'll go home and— the story will follow him home. Either literally, somebody, you know, from a shadowy organization will will tail his car home and position themselves outside his window. Or the story will come alive in his dreams and it will seem like somebody is actually projecting information into his dreams. Like he he can't escape it. And critically, I think it's like he doesn't resist it. He loves mm -hmm. how all-consuming it becomes. So I guess the question in this is how much of that is intentional and how much of it is a reflection of your level of investment in the stories that you tell? Yeah, I think that um, for my, you know, very hardworking cousin, Nick Silver, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's everything. And that it, it is for me the same. The sense of mystery is the, was, you know, as it 
as Nick says in the beginning of Tandis, I think that's that was the thing. That's always the thing that's missing for me as I get older. Is you know, as the sense of the real mystery sort of becomes harder to find. Um, it's all it's there for sure, but um, but that's the lifelong quest. As the sense of mystery starts to leave the world for me. I have to go to greater lengths and, you know, make more effort to find it. And that's, that's, I'm sure what you're, you know, Mm -hmm. responding to with Nick. That's the same. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. it's very much the same. Interesting. Well, uh, that actually is, that is another question I had for you is one of, one of my favorite dynamics that I think is recurrent in a lot of your work is Nick, your hardworking cousin. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the characters that you create, there's this fascinating dynamic where they are extraordinarily fluent in the most modern forms of meaning-making that we have. Specifically, you know, very deeply nested forums and message boards on the internet, the dark web. Um, this virtual collection of human knowledge that you know, we operate under this delusion contains the answers to almost everything. And they have an appreciation for how to access the very deepest reaches of that resource, but they also have an awareness and an acceptance of the fact that they aren't going to be able to find their ultimate answers there. And that dance between their fluency and their desire to, like, access or unlock this next level of meaning is, for me, a big part of what is so intoxicating about the stories. I suppose what I'm saying is I detect that that is part of your mission as a creator, is to encourage us to remember that mystery is eternal and that we're never going to be able to figure anything uh, out ultimately. (laughs) Hopefully we can figure something out. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that uh, the, the hidden corners and... And you know, dark parts of of the world, the Mariana's trench of of our world is kind of we we really have to go there because you know, in the information age, so much has been exposed. It's not like you know, do we decimal card catalogs and stuff are holding you know secrets, and we have to go physically you know, meet people like nowadays it's everything is there. So, so yeah, but we need to, to lift up the rugs in places that perhaps still hold mystery. Yeah. Well, you seem, if I may, to, to draw a lot of inspiration from people like, uh, Aleister Crowley and occult writers who, who were interested in, the equivalent in whatever era they were writing in of exposing the limitations of our understanding, whether it was the internet or religion or, or whatever it was. Do you remember a moment when your interest in those, whatever the right term is, mystics, um, wizard philosophers, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, seekers, seekers, seekers of, uh, arcane knowledge. Yes. Yeah, no, it was, um, that's that's for sure. It's things like Crowley and and um, you know Jimmy Page, <laughs> symbols and Led Zeppelin, and 
you know, all the the goat of men days. Like a lot of horror movies held mm-hmm. sort of um, sway. Like when I grew up, I I would you know sit in front of the television watching Alien on HBO. You know, as a kid, when I should not be seeing these terrifying <laughs> things. So it was, it was always trying to be because uh, I was always seeking for some meaning and mystery. Because religion fell up as soon as I learned about Santa Claus, I knew that. Jesus and God were probably the same, mm-hmm. you know, for some people they're not, but for me, I was like, Oh, that sounds like the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mom and dad, like what? <laughs> one delivers presents and one talks to a snake in a tree or whatever. I, I, they all seemed pretty made up. Yeah. So then I started looking for things. If there's no meaning there in religion, nothing else outside of, you know, our world, then, that, then it led me to, to the things that felt really weird. And then that was mainly sci-fi and horror movies were, you know that, and books, of course, always books. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, there there was a lot of possibility there that I couldn't find in in the real world. Going back to this idea that there was a breakdown of the illusion in the supernatural, vis a vis Santa Claus, vis a vis religion, and so then you gravitated towards these various forms of media that were offering a different plane of access to something beyond our world. What do you think was the appeal to you about the idea that there may be another way to access something outside the world? Because I could imagine, you know, a different kid finds out that these supernatural stories they've been told are not real, and that is a source of relief, and they become intensely practical for the rest of their lives. But but you had something, uh, some sort of seeker in you that... Uh, seem to feel like if I can't access the next plane through these stories that I grew up hearing, let me find other stories that take me there. It was internal, a lot imagination stuff. Like I remember being delivering papers as a kid and I had in my mind, like it was cold where I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. It was like snow everywhere in the winters. And I would deliver these papers with a red wagon and I had mapped out the entire Middle Earth over the neighborhood. <laughs> so I would go to like Rohan and Gondor and I would like, like as I was delivering papers, I was moving through Middle Earth in my mind, you know? So I, I would always sort of map out a world that I could move through in my imagination after that sort of, you know, loss of <laughs> the illusion of eternal life and, and angels and all that. It was less creating and more sort of living in internal worlds. Building a library for later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that that leads me, I suppose, to another one of the things that uh, I think is so fascinating and compelling about your work is, as I mentioned, you do seem to touch so many elements of the creative process. Um, you write, you uh, perform, you play characters in the show, you make the music, and then you also actually render the sound waves and manipulate them, like do the, the mixing and editing. So you're touching an extraordinary amount of the process. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like one of those, there's one of those elements of creative practice that is the trunk that everything else is a branch of? Like, are you fundamentally approaching these things as pieces of sound? Are you fundamentally thinking of them as pieces of writing, as avenues for performance? It's born of necessity, all of the hats. Um, it <laughs> sort of comes from the music. Everything starts with the music when I couldn't afford a good 
you know, producer or engineer. I learned how to do those things for my bands. Um, eventually ending up recording at home, you know, guided by voices or Lenny Kravitz style in my living room uh, and playing all the instruments on most of the records because, um, I had time and I would learn it was, I was time rich and money poor (laughs) always. So why not, you know, take that time to learn how to make a website and, and mix an album and, you know, mic the drums and I had all day to get a good drum track on one song, you know, like yeah, I, yeah. I couldn't afford to pay a proper drummer. So, I mean, I had drummers in my band that, that were great, but then you know, I had to bring them over and then, and, you know, mm-hmm, put mm-hmm. on some clothes that weren't pajamas and stuff. So <laughs> I I ended up sort of doing a, a one person operation out of out of necessity, not out of, you know, control. Although I'm certainly, certainly the control is part of it because I'm only able to do, you know, wearing so many hats you're I'm only able to do it like one way if I try to do it another way it won't be as good or good at all so for me I have like a very limited way of doing things but it works for me but as far as your question goes it's a very easy answer for me in that it's writing writing and editing so um editing when it comes to uh movies and podcasts like I have to edit a movie if I may, if I write and direct it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't have someone else edit it because they will never be as merciless as I am because I just care about what was captured and I will uh-huh. rearrange it in whatever way I want. Uh-huh. It doesn't need to start at the beginning. Right. Whereas an editor will arrange a script. They will arrange their edit in script form from page one to page 110. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, so it's writing and then editing. The stuff in the middle is just... Hang on, get through production, <laughs> get through like disappointing locations, airplane sounds, get through, yeah. you know, sick cast or cast that are late or, you know, and then get to the thing. So the writing is, it's oddly, these are the solitary parts, you know, writing and editing. I'm by myself. I don't know. It's like painting, I suppose. Yeah. You, it's solitary. Well, it, it reminds me of you delivering papers in uh, Calgary. Um, that you're you're the only one who can see that internal map that you've overlaid onto your neighborhood, and it's probably pretty hard to explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably best to not. To, yeah, certainly my parents are like, "What? What are you doing?" <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think uh, gently loving but confused parents is is a prerequisite for <laughs> good creative output later <laughs> in life i think um sure yeah but i want to go back cuz you you just said something very interesting that i would love to unpack a little bit which is that it all goes back to writing for you but that also you have no sense of the script being sacred so is it that you put everything you have into the writing of the script but then you also view the editorial process as a a second pass at writing. Yeah, for of course, uh-huh, yes, uh-huh. Um, always, and the production process mm-hmm. is all is a second. Like nothing is sacrosanct in in a script. If 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 an actor has a better line, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. it's better being the key, right? Like the best idea always wins, or you're not evolved as a creator. It's just, it's an invitation to a party, not a party, right? Like you mm. need to, the thing needs to be brought to life. 
by people. Mm -hmm. If you think of your podcast projects specifically, that makes me curious to know if any of them started out with you thinking they were one thing before they ended up being what they became. Not in the podcast world. Everything was pretty much designed. Mm-hmm. Like when I had the idea for the black tapes, it was specifically because of serial. You know, it was like, really? this is going to end. Yeah, I was uh-huh. listening to serial. I'm like, this is going to end and there will be no more of this uh-huh. because it's too, you know, unique. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out there are a lot more. You know, <laughs> so the, the world exploded. But at the time, there were there were no yeah. like true crime po- podcasts like that. It was it was um, mm-hmm. it was wild. So I decided to make a fake one, and and um, and I had been doing everything by myself for so long. So I I, I brought a friend in to help me with uh, the writing, mm-hmm. and um, and then the black tapes was born. But every day for like six months after I came up with the idea, nine months, I thought someone was going to do it. Uh-huh. Now, when I went to my friend Paul's house to to try to talk him into doing a podcast with me, um, he was not interested <laughs> and had no <laughs> desire to do a podcast. And then, um, but we'd written a script called The Black Tapes uh, years ago. So mm-hmm. that was a movie script, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing from that, aside from the one character of Dr. Richard Strand in The Black Tapes, who was central to that. Mm-hmm. You know, the ghost hunter who doesn't believe in ghosts was the main character in that. That ended up being, you know, the chocolate and peanut butter when he said, well, what if we do it like the Black Tapes as a podcast? And I was like, oh, well, we'll still do the true crime uh-huh. NPR narrator that I mm-hmm. am working on. And you know, the Alex Regan will still be there and then we'll bring in this other element. So anyway, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a, I think that's a good answer to the question maybe because it did start as, totally. a, as yeah. a different, um, in a different medium as I'm telling you, it didn't. And then uh, <laughs> I realized that, yes, it was, it began life, half of it at least, in a script form. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. It, it seems like Black Tapes is a perfect example of something where you guys had a script and you were willing to take the core elements of it and remap it into this completely other thing. But it also strikes me that once you created the black tapes you had also created the pacific northwest stories public radio alliance uh, audio cinematic universe <laughs> right yes in which you then had this incredible you know speaking as a fan every time a new podcast series come out comes out that emanates from that world of characters, even if there's only, you know, glancing reference to the story that preceded it, whether it's Black Tapes or Tannis or, or Rabbits or Last Movie or whatever, um, you have this kind of infinitely expandable, like, accordion of audio tropes that you can then play with and use preceding stories as, as much or as little as you want to. Your willingness to throw out some of your old writing and repurpose it in a new format ended up being this incredible gift because it gave you this whole new world to explore in. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it was, um, it was the podcast, it was, it was the um, NPR podcast format. That was the big sort of. Sure. Cause I'd always loved podcasts and KCRW and, you know, mm-hmm. this American life and everything. Um so it was really that this that feeling. Serial was so immersive with the the way that they did it. Like I don't want to give you know give it all to Serial, but it was just so 
you know, new and exciting in the way that she became, Sarah Koenig became part of our lives in, in, through the headphones. Mm-hmm. That intimacy with the, with the narrator was so new for me that I was like, oh. It was so new thinking of it as a, as a fictional construct, which, you know, for better or worse, I kind of invented the fake serial narrator, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, that became so central to audio fiction after that with Limetown a few months, yeah. six months later, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. The Message and all these other. It's a trope now, right? It's or uh, like found footage. It's its own sort of right, right. Um, it's my favorite, though. Oh, and having that reminded me of your question or your statement. Like Pacific Northwest Stories was something I was really excited about from the beginning. Like when I brought in my friend Paul, I was like, I want it to be this umbrella thing. I need it. I want to do like a, 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 this show called Tannis, and then I want mm-hmm. you to do these shows, and mm-hmm. then that. But I was just pushing it so hard. I'm like, it's good, it's good. He's like, let's just focus on the on the one <laughs> show. I'm like, no, I got so many ideas and so much. To, and then so that's why I ended up, you know, splitting it off and doing public radio lines stuff like Rabbits and yeah. Tannis and the last movie. And Well, it's funny because that impulse is sort of, it shows up in the storytelling because there's this idea in Black Tapes that Nick Silver is Alex's producer and he's, helping her make and tell this story. But then by the time, if memory serves, by the time season two of Black Tapes comes around, season one of Tannis has already come out, and Nick is, he's basically doing what you're describing. He's continuing to sort of build out the broader universe of these stories, even as the Black Tapes project is continuing apace. Nick is always in more and more headspaces uh as the as the public radio alliance world expands yeah he's easy to schedule too (laughs) so it's like (laughs) sometimes actors and um circumstance can can complicate scheduling yeah him he's always easy to track down (laughs) um let's go back to serial for a second because you brought up something that i I think doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to serial, um, which is that, I mean, obviously serial, as you put it, it exploded and transformed our entire medium. Um, and a lot of times I think that gets attributed to the fact that they were investigating a mystery and that the outcome of that investigation felt like it had really high stakes. And I think all of those things are true, but, the thing you made me think about when you were describing it in terms of the intimacy of Sarah's voice in our headphones is that she, more than any other journalist I had interacted with at that point in my own journey, foregrounded her process in this mm-hmm. way. She, she was so open about, um, I, this is how I'm trying to tell this story. I'm talking to Adnan on the phone, but then I'm also going through these phone records because my read of the transcripts from the court proceedings uh, seems like it was really focused on this and I don't fully understand it and I'm telling you that I don't understand it. So let's, it implied is this idea, like let's see if we can figure it out together. It was very, I don't know if vulnerable is the right word, but um, open in this way. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing it, it strikes me is resonant with 
your own journey as a creator is she tells us in the first episode of that show that what she's trying to do is impossible, right? She says, like, I'm trying to get these um, these kids who were in high school in 1999 to remember one afternoon of their life. Mm-hmm. And none of them, of course they can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. And there's this kind of parallel there, I think, where she has all the transcripts, she has access to Adnan himself, um, she has access to so many of the people who were connected to the story, and yet she knows that at the center of it all is this black box that can't ever be opened. There's a resonance there with your own journey as a seeker, like this idea that you, you know that there are going to be stories that don't actually point the way to any kind of larger answer, but you make the decision to keep, keep looking and keep seeking anyway. Does that seem like it, it may have anything to do with what appealed to you about her form of storytelling? Yeah, definitely all of that is is true. I mean, it was, but I feel like it was almost more, not a template, but um, it had every aspect of what I, I, I sort of saw what I was going to do fully formed in my head. And it was more like, it was more like so. There's there's the like his voice, uh, Adnan's voice on on the phone, mm-hmm. and then there's mm-hmm. more clean narration where they're using a dynamic or condenser microphone. Yeah, in a, you know whatever it is, it's like a narration. It's an interview. It's phone. It's like when I was making music, I had you know clips from old movies in the songs. Like mm-hmm. I just had this sort of, and my songs all ran together and and like in. Kind of like you know the side of Abbey Road that has the medley where yes. it's all like, uh-huh. except not as good. But like <laughs> you know that the ideas of all of these disparate sounds and and sound qualities, lo-fi, hi-fi, mid-fi, all together with music underneath and with a with a with with a person who, like you said, was like illicit. Like we're armchair detectives with her mm-hmm. as we go through this mystery. All of that stuff just sat in my mind. I was like, I know exactly what I'm going to do. It was like, there was no, it wasn't like finding bits in here. Like it was fully formed in my mind when I went over to my friend's house and asked if he wanted to help write some podcasts. It was sort of seeing what what I could do with what that sort of, you know, those episodes felt like. One of the recurring techniques that you use in your audio storytelling is under the kind of authoritative host narration, when we hear that, you have these really wonderful looping music beds that persist through a lot of the narration and uh, nested or like encoded in those music beds are sound effects that are, seem like they're related to the world of the story, but... um, aren't a part of the actual immediate scene that's happening, like static on a police scanner, typewriter clicks, yeah. that sort of thing. Do you remember when you discovered that piece of vocabulary and how you knew it was right? Yeah. Do I remember? Yeah. Um, I knew it would be right. Well, I didn't know it would be right, but I knew it would be fun. Like, <laughs> I wanted to do more. Uh-huh. It was Tannis, for sure. Uh-huh. I just don't remember if it was... I think it was the first episode. I think I layer. I started layering in stuff yeah. um, more. Like, if we're talking about 
you know, a fairy tale, there would be the sounds of horses and knights and like stuff like that. And I just thought, well, why not? Like that would be fun. It would just add to the, to the experience, more sound. A lot of purists at the beginning were like, no, there's too much music. I can't, I can't focus. You know, I was like, well, there's other podcasts then because this is not changed. Like this is what's happening. It was kind of selfish in a way because I just want, it was like composing music. Mm-hmm. I just wanted, I missed music a lot. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of my way of, you know, composing these things as, as music more than as, you know, um, radio plays. And that's another thing from the beginning is I didn't, I, as as much as, you know, um, audio drama, radio plays from the old, that old timey, you know, super overacted, just, you know, (laughs) dynamic mics in a room or these would be condenser mics like Neumann's in a, in a, in a, you know, um, you know, space that's antiseptic and you can add reverb and make it sound however you want. Like that's kind of what, what celebrity based podcasts are now where you get like this, Mm -hmm. this, it's just an old time radio drama with, um, famous people in it. Yeah. Very Uh, expensive line items. Yeah. (laughs) Expensive. And it just sounds so, um, unrealistic it sounds like theater mm-hmm. like when you go to the theater those people aren't realistic they're big mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. acting big because they need to get to the back row or whatever mm-hmm. well these radio dramas now these audio dramas now if you look at the top 10 like those and you listen to them they sound um sonically interesting but they're so big it's mm-hmm. hard for me to to engage with them because i don't i don't feel like i'm listening to something authentic i feel like i'm listening i feel like i should be at the theater Right, and I don't want I don't want that as just personally, um, you know, sonically. So, so what I was doing was like the fit. It's high fi for sure, but I need my Sarah Koenig to go into the room holding what Sarah Koenig would be holding, like a Zoom recorder, yeah, or you know, or I'll use a boom, um, but just not. Not like in a movie where it's directly at the perfect space and we'll retake if it's some, you know, it needs to be what the person would have. Yeah. Yeah. So it feels like, and I, I didn't, I always used actual phones to record the phone stuff. Really? Oh, that's yeah, cool. Always just put a mic in front of a phone, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. but, but I was so obsessed with authenticity and, and only what the character would have. Uh-huh. You know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And Alex Regan's not. You know, she's not an audio engineer, although she kind of is. But, you know, she would have her her Zoom, and it would not always be perfect. Well, but it's great. I mean, I think you feel what you're describing right from the beginning in the Black Tapes because you're exactly right. Like, Alex Regan is a journalist with a question. And she's using the tools that a journalist journalist with a question would use to try to answer that question, even though the question is constructed and, you know, imagined by mm-hmm. you and Paul, there's a direct connection there. Alex Regan is not, um, she's not a famous person in a sound studio. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, who, and, and she's not going to get everyone into the sound studio to talk to her. Right, right, exactly. She has to go out into the field. Uh, she has to go to Strand's house. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. The answer that you just gave is thrilling to me, partially because there's such an interesting interplay between the authenticity of what you're describing like okay this character is a journalist she would have these tools this is how she would approach um 
the process of getting answers and translating those answers into sound in a very practical sense. But then you also talked about your use of music and your desire to score things that way as sort of impractical in a sense. Those those were just yeah. like to your taste. Um, yeah, exactly. They're authentic on one side and completely fake and manipulated on the other. That That's my brand. <laughs> Plenty more to come with Terry Miles right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. Characterization of yourself as a creator with a certain set of values and what you were drawn to about um, other stories in this medium, um, all of it makes me uh, think of your your hardworking cousin, Nick Silver. Um, and there's this quality to Nick that, um, you know, we've already talked about his, like, deep sense of immersion and attachment to the stories that he's telling. But there's something very interesting about his persona from a pseudo, I suppose, journalistic standpoint, which is that he is incredibly and like unfailingly polite to his collaborators and his sources. Like one of my favorite little recurring things of his is he gets on the phone with somebody, and this is an incredibly consequential interview in the context of the show. And he always very gently says to them, I'd like to get started if that's okay. Um, like he, well, he is Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So perhaps some of it is, is in the blood. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he is also tenacious. He will not let go of a story, of a thread in a story. In Tannis, there's this recurring thing that MK is constantly telling him, like, Nick, you have to take a step back here. You've got to get some sleep. You've got to relax. Like, this is going to destroy you. In the Black Tapes, there's that really wonderful sequence with him and Alex where he says to her, like, you're behaving unethically. You can't do that. He's, he's tender and he is firm at the same time. Um, I guess I'm curious how much of that is intentional. How much of it do you think is a, an extension of you as a as an artist? It must be an extension of me because I just write what I would do. That's the key to all of the writing that I do. Like, no matter what, it sometimes gets in, gets you into trouble and it adds m- way more work than you thought. But <laughs> The characters have to do exactly what you would do or exactly what a smart person would do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can't have a character behave in a way that somebody smart wouldn't behave Mm -hmm. just to get them into a room where I need that. So I have to rewrite the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe like, I feel like it's probably the same with Nick. Like he has to say what I would say or what my idea of, you know, uh, 
a, a smart journalist would say, pseudo journalist, maybe better for him. But uh, but uh, uh, well, in in twenty twenty two, he's probably a you yeah. know award winning journalist. <laughs> um, I I trust him more than a lot of uh, other people. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. Um, yeah, he has to say he has to say and do everything that a smart. Uh, a smarter than me person would do. Like I have to even go further that, yeah. Um, in, in order to maintain that verisimilitude. Mm-hmm. Well, in that same vein, then one thing I talked with Adrian a lot about asking you, uh, because it's it's one of the many things that she loves about your work, is the way that you write women, and. I know it's kind of a weird thing for, like, two guys to sit in a recording booth and talk about how to write women. Um, so I acknowledge that. Um, and also that, you know, it, it is a terrible sadness that it even has to be an uncommon thing. Like, you write women as human beings. Like, how? Why? <laughs> it's absurd that, you know, uh, that's a conversation that, that has to happen. And yet, she finds you to be remarkably good at it. and. It's one of the things that she's persistently grateful for in your work is that you are always writing female characters who are motivated by all the same things that your male characters are. And there doesn't seem to be a divide in your mind and your heart as a creator between them as types. So I guess the question is, like, how conscious is that? Is it something that is part of your value system as a writer where um, do you... Is it even something you think about? <laughs> well, not really. It's not something I think about. But for me, I think it's because I'm, I think back to Krzysztof Kieslowski, the Polish filmmaker, did Red, White, and Blue, and you know the dec- Decalogue, and his characters, and Bergman too. Like those are my favorite filmmakers. So I want to watch Irene Jacob or um, Julie Delpy, like those. I don't know. Those are my favorite movies. So I think that that is always the female characters are central to all of those. And I mean, they had an enormous impact on my work in, in film. So when, when I make my movies, my movies all have female leads. I think, I don't know. I'm also more interested in women. I mean, I know how I think, so I'm, you know, um, Mm. I'm far more interested in exploring a different point of view and when i'm making these things i'm watching and reading and you know my all of my research is based on novels written or like amy hempel stories or mm-hmm. you know um m- movies a lot of movies i will say have an oversized you know influence in my life at least up until tony stark took over movies but <laughs> up, up until that point you know and even now more foreign cinema yeah and yeah like kim ki-duk hong sang Soo, these film korean filmmakers have you know i think it just is more interesting to me i guess yeah at the risk of uh making women sound like an unsolvable puzzle uh, it, there's a way in which it's like it's another pathway to mystery for you um is how can i accurately depict and reflect a, a character who i don't have as ready access to yeah i i, I think it's I don't really think about it, actually, uh-huh. Sam. But I'm glad. But I, that's really nice that Adrian said that, and it, it means a lot. Well, I suppose. Um, I, I guess I have two more things I want to say. One is sort of the last question, and then one is. Um, I guess I just want to tell you something. Um, so I'll, I'll ask you the last question first. Um, sure. Okay. 
the last question is one of my favorite things about the rabbit's book is and I know this is in the podcast too but it it's a much it plays a much bigger role in the book is this concept of moonrise um this symbol that appears to rabbits players when they're on the path um and I find that to be just like an infinitely compelling idea that when you're on the right track, the universe manifests some symbol and you can't divine what led you to this point, but it is a sign that whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. And it's a great storytelling device for rabbits as a story, but it also strikes me as sort of a perfect metaphor for creativity. And I wonder if you thought about it that way or or where moonrise came from for you it it is sort of like how do you know you're on the the right path so if you encounter a symbol or a phrase the door is open you know wh- like then you it, it it feels like you need some reward there, there needs to be like i like looking or like the or like fours you know the fact that rabbit players see the number four, 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 more than other people. Mm-hmm. Well, I see it like if I feel like I see it every day, and, and every day <laughs> I, I'm like, oh my god, this is this must be the right path. Um, maybe it's wi- it's me wishing that there was a moonrise, you know, mm. on the side of a, a moving truck as I go. So if I see that, I'll I'll be excited, even though you know I made it up. If I see a moonrise like this <laughs> afternoon after this, I am still going to, uh, you know, there's going to be, like, no matter what I say or no matter what, you know, it, it's still, that's weird. You know, there's still something there. Um, and I guess that's just, yeah, it's just that sort of want for acknowledgement that you're on a path, that there is some sort of deeper meaning. Yeah. There's somewhere to go to end up. Yeah. Well, so that makes me want to ask you about your relationship from a storytelling standpoint to endings. Because another one of the things that I love about your work is in the podcasts specifically, we always arrive at a conclusion of an arc that begins at the front of the season and pushes us through to a point where we get answers to a lot of the questions that were introduced, but the the big central question, what is Tannis? What is Rabbits? Is the last movie real? These mm-hmm. questions persist. I think my favorite things are have that sort of ending, but the questions are answered on what happened that, you know, like there was a, we needed to open a vortex to another world and then we saw the <laughs> vortex and something happened and the vortex was closed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, and then there's a little question as to what's next. Is there anything next? Um, yeah, I, I can't have a, a, just a like neatly tied up, um, you know, limited series narrative ending for these. Cause mm-hmm. it, that wouldn't be, I wouldn't want that as a listener. Mm-hmm. I guess it's selfish again. I just don't want that. I just, I want a little bit of ambiguity, a little bit of, was it drugs? Was it, mm-hmm. was it another universe? Was it, you know, I want those questions. I don't want to know what the, you know, what the thing is. I don't want to know what's in the Pulp Fiction briefcase. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, 
I'd rather not know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, my partner Adrian and I were talking last night watching The White Lotus about we have this playful disagreement about as the show unfolds, she's constantly trying to figure out, okay, who dies? We know somebody dies. Are they trying to give us a clue <laughs> that it's that person? Are we trying to give us, are they trying to give us a clue that it's that person? And my thing is like, I want to put zero effort into figuring that out because I want as much as possible to have the delight of when it is revealed, just experiencing it. I want mm-hmm. to sit in the, in the uncertainty, the same uncertainty that all the characters in the show live in to whatever degree I can, even though I know someone's going to die. Um, yeah. And I think she, for the record, is a huge fan of your work too. So it's not that she does not have a similar pull towards mystery, but it does feel like there's a, there's a connection in what you were just describing about your relationship to endings in the stories. And if we go all the way back to this original idea of getting an answer to the fact that Santa Claus is made up, that uh, religion seems like a similar human construct, and being unsatisfied, like you at your core, seemingly, yeah. are sort of unsatisfied with these pat answers. <laughs> yes, yeah. That, that, that might, you may have just unpacked my need for, for an, <laughs> a little bit of ambiguity at the end. What do you think is at stake if we lose that connection to mystery? I don't know. I mean, for me, I don't want to find out. You know, it's like I, I don't even know if I believe it's possible that there is something else out there, but I want to, and I, I feel like I don't want to lose that that want. You know, having kids didn't didn't make me lose the want. You know, publishing a book didn't make me lose the want. So it's still, I, if we lose that, I'm. I don't know. I can't, uh, you know, I think people have lost it a lot. And, and it, it seems like a, an existential angst sort of, you know, fills the, the space when someone's lost that. So, yeah, I think maybe what we lose is a little sense of hope. Mm. I guess then the last thing is I, I just want to tell you that uh, one of the most pleasurable afternoons and evenings I have ever spent is Adrian and I ordered a pack of path cards. Um, oh, <laughs> and I'm <some> here. <laughs> we play. We played the game, and or I don't. I don't know if I should even say the game. We followed the cards. Um, so we are in different universes right now, potentially. <laughs> could be. I. I don't. I, mean, know. I guess we'd have to be in the same one. <laughs> um, and there were just so many uncanny elements to it. We turned over one card and there was an infinity symbol among other symbols on the card. And yeah. I looked up and I was standing next to an Audi car that has a series of linked rings. Um, yeah. And then that Audi car on its bumper had a rocket ship bumper sticker. Oh, wow. And then I looked up and there was a family of four walking towards us with a rocket ship balloon. Um, oh my gosh! And so we. So I was already doing rocket from uh, from the novel. That's oh, right, of course, of that. course. Yeah, but yeah, okay, wow. That didn't even occur to yeah. me in the moment. So then we went over to that family and asked them where they got the balloon from, and they said it was from this birthday party. And they said, "Oh, there's still there's still some food left over 
if you wanted to go have some. And then we we said, okay, thank you very much. And then we went to where they, they said it was happening, that there was no more food, but we were like, okay, food, food, food. So then we thought, okay, well, this this place where the food once was is the next station. So, yeah. So we turned over the next card, and it was a five. So we were close to Fifth Avenue here in Brooklyn, uh, or sorry, Fifth Street. So we walked down Fifth Street, and there was a five guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the symbol on card number five is the twins. So we go into the five guys to get food, and we're sitting there eating, and two identical twin brothers walked in. <laughs> and, you know, just the, the, the thing on the cards and, and, and in the show where, you know, it says path cards are connected to a deep and ancient power that you really want to be careful yes. to mess with. Uh, it felt very palpable in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. That is, the, that is so good. <coughs> so thank you for that experience. <laughs> Those are functioning properly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the magical paper that is used and the, 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 the water from the source mm-hmm, really, mm-hmm. wow. I can taste it. That's great. Thank, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you, Terry, for, for taking this time. It's been a, a real honor to talk to you. And um, I can't wait for season six of Tannis. I can't wait for the new... Rabbit's novel, I, I'm just really grateful, as I said, for your work and uh, really appreciate you being a part of this project. Well, thanks so much, Sam. Anytime, I, uh, I had a great time talking. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. The so Wild Card Wednesday. The so Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. The so Wild Card Wednesday. As a baseball fan, I find myself bristling when broadcasters try to explain what's happening in a baseball game. It's not that I don't want them to describe what's going on. It's the attempt to explain that bothers me. There's this annoying trend now where they think it enriches my experience of the game to learn about the spin rate on a curveball or the launch angle of a home run, as though knowing the spin rate might explain how a pitcher gets a baseball to dart 18 inches right to left when he throws it from a mound of dirt at 85 miles an hour. I love baseball because I don't think that is something mere mortals can do. Which is why I appreciated when the Atlanta Braves TV crew recently invited Georgia's own Antoine Patton, better known as the rapper Big Boy from OutKast, into the broadcast booth during a game. Observing a wicked breaking ball, Big Boy called it like he saw it. Do it. I do it. Oh, Lord, what is that? 
He's a magician. Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Terry Miles for joining me on the show today. Visit terrymiles.com to learn more about the shows we talked about, as well as the other ones we didn't even get to, Fairy, The Last Movie, and Wildflowers, as well as his books, films, and original music. Our opening homily is adapted in part from the lyrics of the song Sick and Suffering by Jocelyn McKenzie. Our Wildcard Wednesday theme song features the musical talents of Dave Van Ronk and Evan Viola, and the voice talents of the Famiply. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins. If you have thoughts about anything you've heard on The Midnight Disease, send me a note. The email address is midnight at walt.fm. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. Most of all, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. We'll be back next week, and until then, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.